Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution NHS, we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I am Benedict Clark from Evolution Recruitment Solutions and today I am your host. Today I am joined by Salma Yasmin, Deputy CEO and Executive Director of Strategy at South Yorkshire NHS Partnership Foundation. I'm also joined by Diane Wilkinson, Team and Leadership Coach at Connecting to Excellence. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. We deliver um, digital projects and digital people into the NHS. And through that work, I've met some really, really amazing women who have let me in to a little bit of a window in their lives. And I started just with one interview, a lady called Lisa Emery. I don't know if you know her, Salma. She was the CDIO at uh, Royal Marsden. And she's, um, she runs a, a network around uh, digital leaders in the NHS in London. And she said to me, well, why don't you start with me? And then you can do go around and do all, you know, interview all these other ladies. I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. So in the first instance, she gave me the opportunity and then she gave me a further opportunity. So I was just amazed that this lady would give me, she'd never really met me, but she was all about keeping the ladder down, not lifting that ladder up. And not only would she do that for women within her NHS network, she was also open to do that for women I'm a supplier, you know, like I'm I'm not in directly in her world. So I was incredibly grateful. Um, I also run something called Her Plus Data. So I founded that about five years ago, which is a women's um, network in Manchester for ladies that are doing anything to do with data. Um, and um, and it's broadly more a bit more now technology. But women were going to meetups in Manchester, very male dominated and um, finding that they couldn't speak up. They didn't want to necessarily put themselves forward to doing a talk because they felt a little bit intimidated. Um, but in that female safe space, they felt much, much more able to do that. So we've got 1,600 ladies in our community there. And then I'm also doing something for One Health Tech. That's um, it's an NHS England sort of led initiative. And then all the hubs, and I run the Manchester hub, run campaigns around diversity uh, and inclusion. And then I've been invited to the HET show a couple of times to talk on um, topics around that and sort of do panel conversations. So that's my interest. And when I saw that you'd written the book, I couldn't not reach out. I just, you know, I'd love to know to know more. So um, shall I pass to you, Salma? Yeah, and um, thank you, Benedict. And of course, delighted to be part of this conversation with you. And uh, there is a story behind that, isn't there? Um, but I'm currently working as the um, Deputy Chief Executive and Director of Strategy and Change at Southwest Yorkshire Partnership and Just Foundation Trust. Um, but at the end of June, I'll be departing to take my first chief executive role in the NHS at Sheffield Health and Social Partners. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Good for you. Absolutely good for you. I, I was meant to do a little clap. <laughs> I wanted to do a little clap. Ah, oh, amazing. Amazing. And Diane? Uh, so I am uh, an OD consultant and I have my own boutique consultancy with and I work across sectors, so have worked extensively in the NHS, and that's where I have met Salma. 
And I also work in private sector and public sector. So, for example, currently I'm going to Austin and Berlin to work with uh, an energy trading company. And I also work with Blenheim Palace because I live in Oxford. Not because, but I'm delighted to have them as a client. And I brought my children up going to the playground outside Blenheim Palace because oh. it was free and it didn't have to pay for entry. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. So, yeah. And as you can hear from my accent, I am originally South African, came to this country for one year over 30 years ago, and this is now home. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. So could I ask the first question in what was the motivation for writing the book? And I'd love each of you to answer. Uh, Summer, do you mind if I start? Because uh, I had an email from from uh, Dawn and uh, she, which was really, so in fact, Bernadette, it came from, there are, there are three things, which is pandemic, flag and Salma. And if I start with pandemic, I was meant to be traveling on the 21st of March to go and work in Dallas, uh, in Texas. Guess what? Didn't move for 18 months, as we all know. And, and actually, I happened to have a lot of business internationally at that time for the next three months. Tra-la-la, business went crash. Yeah. And as a result, a number of us consultants, not Dawn at that stage, got together and just said, come on, we've got to do these large scale uh, workshops, webinars online. I'd always coached online uh, for many, many years, but not the, I wasn't really pro the not face-to-face -face stuff. And so got together with a wonderful colleague, uh, Rob Geraghty, and we put on stuff locally and internationally. I, I collaborated with Oxford Brooks University and for a month ran some webinars. I then decided to run some of my own content. This was originally with uh, this colleague, Rob. So I, I contacted Dawn and I said, come on, Dawn, I just I need a co-presenter on a webinar. No, she said, I'm not doing that. So I said, I thought, oh, gosh, I need another tack here. So I said, Dawn, how about you just join the webinar and you just be there? And if there's a question or two that you want to answer. And she said, oh, all right, Diane, I'll join you. So, so and we laugh about this now. She then, we, we then went on to run some very successful international webinars co-presenting. So after getting her on once, I then, uh, she saw the value in it and saw that actually she can do it brilliantly. Then she set up some webinars called FLAG. So from pandemic, we then moved to still within pandemic, but FLAG. And what is FLAG? Female Leadership and Growth Webinars. And this is where Salma comes in as well. And Dawn used a beautiful process called the Turning Points Process by Bob Dick. And Salma was invited as the first guest speaker to talk about her turning points. And the purpose of this was this was aimed at uh, female leaders and encouraging female leaders. So lovely to hear about the work that you do, Bernie. That's so wonderful. 
And Dawn and I are passionate about things happening like Salva becoming chief exec. Salva, we're so proud of you. And we knew you could do it long before you even said so. And on this webinar, Dawn then said, Salma, to the tell us about your turning points. Salma did this. I was so struck. I just said at the end, Salma, that was phenomenal. There is a book in you. And she said, yes, yes, uh, uh, people have been saying this to me. And Salma, maybe I hand over to you then. Actually, Salma, let me hand over to you then. So I honestly, my jaw was hanging open. But I I think the most important thing as I hand over to Salma is I was was touched deeply. And for me, working with leaders, whether they are female or male, and myself, when I'm touched in my heart and my gut, I call it, to me, that's the real essence of leadership. So Salma, tell us more about uh, when I said, oh, Salma, there's a book in you. Yeah, thank you, Dan. And Dan was incredibly uh, generous, but so was the um, the other people that were on the on the webinar uh, that day. Um, and I had been reflective for some time because I'd done um, kind of shared my uh, leadership journey and some of my insights and reflections several times. And then I thought it might perhaps if I started to write about it, it might help me um, to really crystallise some of the other learning that you lose along the way. I think because you're mm-hmm. kind of in the it goes to the back of your mind or you suppress it. Um, and I think Diane just giving me that nudge uh, that day was was probably the start of that. Um, but just to say that the pandemic was a time of, I mean, we were in the NHS and the first, you know, six months and probably longer was um, a time of really just jumping into action. And it was a call to action, really. And it was yeah. a call that many of us um, had risen to when we joined the NHS and keeps us going. Um, but beyond that, really, I think for those of us that are a bit more reflective, I think I certainly felt like I needed some reflective space. Um, and I'd, I'm not quite sure. I think I think uh, Dawn reached out to me at that time um, about the webinars and invited me to speak on it. And I thought, well, it's an opportunity while I'm preparing for it to reflect on what matters mm-hmm. to me. And actually, I think even in just doing that webinar, um, it was really key to helping keeping me going at that time. I didn't realise at the time how important it was, but it was. Um, and then I carried on joining all the others and used to, I, I used to be off, right, you know, do whatever I was doing for work, but listening in on the other webinars, which were phenomenal with some great women. Um, and after we'd had that conversation, we then followed it up and down, didn't let it go. She was a bit like, so what about this book then? <laughs> oh. So I which- said... How about we do, I think we, it was a collective kind of, we were just having a post um, webinar conversation and we kind of said, what about a book where we try and capture the stories of lots of brilliant women? You know, they don't have to be in a formal paid job. They could be contributed to society um, in any corner of the world doing anything. And it was about celebrating lots of different women, the diversity of women, the lives lived. Um, the, the the struggles overcome um, and just really trying to bring home that women are contributing to every sphere of life and this world to make it a better place in so many different ways um, and really to inspire the next generation. So I think the ambition got bigger, didn't it? Um, and then and we all believe in leading for legacy. Um, and I think that that is something that was crystallised 
through developing both the first and second edition of the book. And now I'm talking about a third edition for, for the next international oh, I, I literally think it's amazing. And, um, I'm, you know, it, it's, I'm going to say I haven't actually read the book yet. I know definitely, definitely need to put that on my list of things to do. But I, I'm really... Um, what I was hearing from you, Diane, when I um, when you explained, um, is that you nudged Dawn. So if you hadn't have done that little nudge, then then there's a lot of things that wouldn't have have happened. And and I guess that's what I was talking about when I did my intro is that other women recognizing in another woman like her her strengths and then providing a little platform or a little opportunity. I'm I'm always referring back to Lisa because she was the originator and then Diane in your session but someone might have done that for you somewhere along the line for you then to be in a position where you then gave Dawn the little nudge would that be fair or something like that happened in your life shall I tell you the nudge please because it ties in with some of those other questions that you uh, mentioned and uh, who is your role model and what is my background and the nudge came from a most phenomenal woman called Mian Chung Judge. And she has been a global OD consultant and leading the way in OD in Europe. Uh, and, and for example, worked with the BBC about 15, 20 years ago, doing a large scale change program uh simultaneously online so just phenomenal was way ahead of her time sadly she passed away has passed away in the last year and i was sitting on her sofa some i don't think i've told you this um sitting on her sofa in her um in her house with a um a mission partner meeting from the church that i go to and she said to me, um, Diane, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, well, I'm looking after my three children. I'm at home full time. And she said, no, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I would love to get back to the leadership development work I was doing. She said, I'll tell you what, why don't you go and do your Myers-Briggs training? And I investigated it and it was going to cost £2,000, which I didn't have £2,000 at that stage to be able to do it. Fortunately, the pre-pandemic years, this is many, many years ago, the the in the European head office for Myers-Briggs was up the road from where I live in Oxford and still is. And I went and attended a face-to-face -face workshop and that, and she then in Mian employed me on and off. And that was the beginning of it. But actually, I want to give you another beginning because, again, it's a nudge. So, Bernie, yeah. I, I love what you're saying. And I, my children were at a, a state primary school in Oxford. And we, every year, uh, us women in the summer would do a bring and share meal. You bring a plate of food and a bottle of something. And by the way, food is significant in my life wherever I am. And we went to uh, an, a place next to the Thames River called Parsons Pleasure. And I think people go skinny dipping. However, we would have <laughs> this bring and share meal together. And my very one of my very dear friends called Tess Blenkinsop said, 
uh, Diane, you must meet Jess. And I was chat, chat, chatting. There were probably about 25 of us women. And I was chat, chat, chatting away. She came to me three times and said, Diane, you must meet Jess. By this time, I think the rain was coming down slightly, as we know in our summer parties it can happen. And eventually, at about sort of 10.30 that night, she introduced me to Jess. I then, this is post Myers-Briggs training, I then went on to work for her in her consultancy based in Oxford uh, for the next 10 to 15 years and worked internationally. And I am hugely grateful to Tess giving me that nudge saying, I, I want you to meet Jess. And uh, yeah, so Bernie, that's a beautiful yeah. question you ask it yeah. about those nudges. It's 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 so important, isn't it? And um shall we shall we talk then as we've obviously sent you a couple of questions um ahead of ahead of time and I feel like we've already gone off, which is often the way and I love that. I I never want to sort of stop anyone or bring it back because actually it's those moments that are really beautiful. Um so could we talk about maybe your um the careers that you've both had and, and sort of those bumps in the road, because I'm really interested in hearing the turning point, Selma. Yeah, thank you, Benza. Um, I mean, I'm a nurse by background, I'm a mental health nurse by background, and um, incredible, incredibly passionate and have been throughout my life, I think, about mental health. And two particular reasons that drove me, I think, into this direction of career. One, a, a very personal connection, a maternal and um, who experienced uh, mental health issues and left, I think, uh, a real impact on me from a very young age. Um, and secondly, talking about nudges, a nudge from a teacher um, on a, um, a, a course that I was uh, doing post-education. I didn't particularly know what I wanted to do. Um, and um, she did say to me, we were exploring different careers, I think, in this session. And she did say to me, you'd make a brilliant mental health nurse at the end of this session. And I thought, what do one of them do? And um, so she actually helped me to navigate that a little bit. Um, and I, I, reflecting on it, I think the connection was definitely there at the time to my maternal aunt and certainly my experiences of walking into a mental health unit many, many, many years ago. Um, firstly, I didn't see anybody that looked like me. And secondly, I couldn't quite understand how they were making her better. She definitely didn't look better in the time that I was there. Um, so um, I think that was the start of it. And I think over the years, I've been able to crystallise and make sense of that more, more certainly. Um, I've then gone on, I think, um, to have what I would de describe as a really varied and diverse career. Um, and one that, it, you know, that I feel incredibly privileged to have had. Um, and I've also worked with some incredible people, I think, both inside the sector and outside the sector. But I've, um, you know, worked in inpatient units, community teams, um, then went on to lead and manage uh, teams in the NHS. Took a brave step out at one point in my career um, to work in the voluntary and community sector. And I always describe that as an absolute baptism of fire, um, leaving the comfort of the NHS to go and work in the voluntary and community sector. Um, but an incredible um, an opportunity to make a real difference, much deeper in communities, recognising the strengths in communities um, and connecting different diverse communities to public services and building those bridges, I think, was quite um, a prominent role that I, I took on. That became, we, we led that to become um, a registered charity, which went on for many years. 
Um, and then I moved into policy implementation, both in Yorkshire and um, in London, um, one around delivering um, um, a choice at the end of life and one around um, delivering um, equity uh, or equality in mental health care, both areas I'm passionate about. Um, moved to London and did um, both the end of life programme, but then went back into my passion around mental health as my in my first deputy director role at South London and Maudsley, a brilliant trust um, that I had the opportunity to work in um, across four boroughs. So learned a huge amount about diversity and working across scale. Um, and it was at that point that um, we're thinking about perhaps going a bit further than Yorkshire and uh, a, a bit further than London. Um, and we talked about going to the to the Middle East. Um, and in fact, it was a brilliant chief executive, a male chief executive um, at the time who um, suggested to me that I shouldn't just leave the trust, um, that I should perhaps go on a sabbatical, which I didn't think I was entitled to do it. I hadn't even thought about. But that gave me the safety and security of maintaining my role um, for a year if I wanted to come back to it and things didn't work out. Because it was quite a big step. Yeah. Um, and I was very unsure, I have to say, um, but we did go and spent several brilliant years um, learning, developing, growing, contributing to healthcare um, in the Middle East. And we, I worked as the director of nursing uh, and transformation for the flagship medical city in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And again, a huge um, privilege to have had, you know, to have done that role, but in another country and made some incredible friends and pe- met people from right across the world, had the opportunity um, to visit hospitals um, in um, Bar, South, you know, Asia, in um, America, and um, certainly in Europe. So was really learning from an international uh, context, and also how do you take knowledge from a different part of the world and translate that in a totally different cultural context um, was something that was quite key to my learning. Came back, took eleven months off, was absolutely exhausted. Did some lovely things like play around with fabrics and did my house up, and then really miss being part of something much bigger. So I went back to the NHS and in my current role, which I've been in for six years, it's been an incredible journey. I think I've had the opportunity to work with some brilliant people um, and we have done a lot to try and improve um, mental health, learning disabilities and autism care, um, both across South and West Yorkshire, but also um, really developing um, physical community services to be much more integrated and holistic in their offer. Um, and obviously, I've just been recruited and appointed to my first chief executive role as well. So an incredible career um, to date. Um, but what's been at the heart of it really has been people and making a difference. And that's something that I constantly come back to, I think. And so was there one or several turning points in that in that journey? What was the... Cause Diane, you've mentioned a couple of times that the pandemic, like the pandemic changed us all, didn't it? Um, I've I've definitely felt that in in my career it, that that had an effect and a very positive one. What what was the actual? Was there something that you highlight, or was it you know yeah. a, a, sort of a cluster of things? Yeah, so I think I think my whole career journey has been intertwined with my own personal life. I think they often are, and I think to try and separate them out is is um, it's really superficial. I think and not helpful. So, you know, my reasons for coming choosing to be a mental health. I mean. I didn't quite know what a mental health nurse does, but I knew that I wanted to make a difference somehow. And that's why I was exploring, uh, you know, a social care career or something. And um, so th- that was driven by my personal experience of a brilliant maternal aunt who 
um, I'd seen a real decline in and it had left a real impact on me. And and when I talk about, you know, walking into a, a mental health unit at the age of seven or eight um, to visit a loved one and dark, long corridors, lots of people smoking, you know, it's etched in my memory. And, um, I, you know, I wanted it to, I, I, I just knew something had to be different, really. I mean, thankfully, you know, you were so young. Huge. Yeah, the, and thankfully, there's been huge progress. So even by the time that I was training, that, you know, compassionate care was everywhere in the NHS. Um, and, um, you know, occasionally we did get things wrong, and we, you know, and you did see uh, not best practice, even as a student nurse, but there's roots and mechanisms to deal with that and address address that. Um, so I think that was a, a crystallising point. I think yeah. the other one that I often talk about is, um, you know, I'd spent a decade in uh, in Yorkshire, in Bradford, where, uh, you know, I'd stepped out into the laundry sector. I'd worked in one of the first ever home treatment teams in the country. Um, I'd led teams. I'd learned a huge amount. And I always say I cut my teeth in Bradford. Um, and um, I was leaving Bradford because I was getting married. Uh, so a year of joy and also I, I describe it as a year of sorrow because my own father who'd lived with early onset dementia um, for a decade. So all that time that I'd been working in Bradford, my own father was being cared for at home by us. Um, and that was in my very early 20s. Um, he, he, we had a conversation with the doctor. He was at end of life. Um, and it was interesting because the job that I was going to go and do in London whilst you know I moved to get married uh, was also about end of life care. So I'd been spending, though I, th- I think December I'd spent all month swatting up for this uh, this job interview. Got the job I think in January, and then you know several weeks later, um, it, probably a couple of weeks after the interview, actually the doctor um, called us in and said, "Has anybody had a conversation with you and your mum about your dad's prognosis?" And I kind of knew what was coming there. Um, so I, I think it's been intertwined, really, and my passion for you know good um, preventative care um, support um, for people and families uh, who experience dementia um, is also something that continues um, in in terms of what I do. But I think it's more the underlying principles of how do we keep people well, how do we harness their strengths um, and utilize their strengths, and I think the importance of delivering um, a public service for everyone you know, and not just um, kind of from the perspective of people that are in the services, because quite often services are not as diverse as they should be in terms of the workforce or in terms of how we reach out to people um, to deliver sensitive care. Yeah, I imagine when you were first a nurse and you're dealing one-on-one or, you know, with with a a patient directly, obviously you build up your knowledge, but you're probably thinking, well, I'm dealing with one person. And then as you've grown in your career, you're impacting so many lives. Yes. Uh, I expect that's really wonderful to be able to I, I take think, that. Yeah, I think that's what's driven me, Bernadette. I think it was it's never been kind of what's my next job title or what's my next role. And and actually Diane will know this, but you know, I tortured myself to death about whether I should ever become a chief executive or not because of the huge privilege and responsibility that comes with that. But actually recognizing that I've probably I'm probably doing so much of that now already gave me the courage, I think, to step into that and some brilliant and just some brilliant women. I think, um, and a man, you know, uh, my previous boss had nudged me already and I'd said, don't be daft, it's not I'm not going to do that. And then actually some brilliant women in the system had nudged yeah. me. And then I thought, gosh, I really need to think about this because lots of people are nudging me now. Part of me wanted them to just go away and not nudge me, but I thought, gosh, it's incredibly generous of them to do that. And and that's been the journey into this most recent role. Uh, Selma, I love the being on the interview panel uh, part. 
Yeah. So, so in my, I, I'll just share this. Um, I was on, um, I, the job that I'm going into, I'd been nudged by one of the uh, chief executives, um, in the system. And I'd said, oh, no, no, I, I just don't want to do that role, I think. And, um, I'm really good at being a second. Uh, uh, and she said, well, you know, lots of people are mentioning you and thinking that you probably, you know, you probably should think about it more seriously. Anyway, I said, I'll go away and I'll think about it. That's fine. And then I did, I really thought about it and uh, came back and said, not at this moment, but what you have done is made me think that in the next 12 months, I'm going to make that move. And it might be into a chief executive role. I said, okay, well, I've got, you know, we're, we're recruiting for a chief executive here. Why don't you join the panel? Oh yeah, okay, no problem. And when I was sat in the panel, I was sat there thinking, oh, maybe I could do this job. Maybe I could be sat across there. So actually the fear of even going through the process was removed. Um, and at that point, still, I was thinking, you know, it's over the next 12 months, I've got plenty of time to think about this. <laughs> Something will come up that really catches my eye. Um, and lo and behold, uh, literally, probably uh, two months later, I'm sat exactly in the in the opposite seat. Um, I've got a feeling that that lady uh, knew what she was <laughs> yeah. doing. She deliberately did that. Yeah. So, really, Leia, I love that story because, and I'd like Brilliant. to meet her, Salma, someday. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm also convinced she was um, she was had an ulterior motive. Of she we were likely what she was doing. Yes, yes. <laughs> She's an incredible woman, Diane, and I'm um, hopefully you will meet her. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. You just said then um, I'm um, I'm, a, I'm a really good second, and I have said those words before. So that really resonated with me just then Samuel when you when you said that and I think it's um you know the more that you do that I'm, I'm sort of doing these things um with other people it does have a sort of subliminal effect on on you personally um I feel privileged to you know to be able to have these conversations Diane would you walk us through a little bit about your your career and your background and maybe some of the reasons why you were in the position to 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 write the book uh, yes and I want to get a picture two pictures in fact um, oh. This is my grandmother. Yeah. And this is my mother, now eight, oh, Beautiful nine. ladies. Beautiful ladies. And uh, my mother is arriving uh, on Thursday, flying from South Africa for my son's wedding. Oh, and wonderful. My, my grandmother was, ran a debt collecting agency. And so, turning points in my life, or the, the, the memory that I've got are her sayings. And uh, one of them was, you need to wait until the political position in Peru is correct before you say anything. And I, in my 20s, said to her, oh, granny, that's total rubbish. You should be able to say anything at any time to people. And I then came to live in this country, which was a huge turning point. And in the first 10 years of living here, I got feedback that I was blunt. And this was from Mian Chung Judge, this wonderful role model, formidable woman uh, in my life and in many, many people's lives in the UK and globally. And she said, oh, Diane, the message on your phone, your voice message is, is rather harsh. Oh, gosh, okay. And then in my book club, a friend said to me, um, I'd said something, and she said, oh, gosh, um, 
Yes, Diane's being um, rather blunt. And, you know, I held this feedback for 10 years, I'm ashamed to say, that I, I, I thought it was the British. Meanwhile, I was becoming British as well. And it took me until 10 years later and that Myers-Briggs course and learning about myself and the impact that I had on others to go, oh, gosh, actually, this is about me and I am, and now I call it South African blunt. However, I now have learned how to regulate and make that choice about what impact do I want? So much so that I've designed a model, which I can share with you if you want, on the the choice impact model. And I use it in all my work with clients to say, what in what choice do you want to make about the impact you want? Do you want to stay in your comfort zone and for me still be blunt? Or do I want to choose to use a gent and I call it my gentle British uh, approach or voice? And so that was, again, getting that feedback was hugely influential, but comes back to Granny saying, you need to wait until the political position in Peru is correct before you say something. And I'm I'm glad to say that I humbly went back to her in Zimbabwe, where she lived, to say in my 30s, and said, oh, Granny, I've learned now. I need to wait until the political position in Peru is correct. By the way, to this day, she she died many years ago. I still don't know what it means, the political position in Peru, but actually I don't need to know because her wisdom of having run this, she ran this debt collecting agency for 40 years, and my memory of her was this woman who sat and did embroidery in her garden while my brother, sister, and I swam in the swimming pool in in gorgeous, warm Zimbabwe. And and this gentle nature, but incredibly strong and could deal with my very grumpy grandfather. And so again, similar to Salma, I do believe that the those elements of my life and my mum, who I honestly grew up yeah, you, you, your question about imposter syndrome, Bernie. I had that's the one I, um, I, I kind of went mm, because my mum made me believe that if I wanted to become an astronaut, I could, and she would simply say, "Oh, okay." So um, I didn't, by the way, want to become an astronaut, but she would say things like, "Okay, I wonder what we need to do to help you do that." By the way, I said to her, I want to be an air hostess. And she said, oh, you're just a glorified waitress, Diane. (laughs) So it wasn't without its challenge and interest. But I do believe that having had a mother who totally believed in me and enabled me to believe that I could do anything, for me, was a platform in life. And and so a platform rather than a turning point of, Now, when I see obstacles in life, I don't go, oh gosh, woe is me. I I see how I can navigate it and how I can get around it. Because my mother just role modeled that in this most beautiful, calm, easygoing way uh, in life. Amazing, isn't it? You said you didn't know what it was sort of what it, it means, that political position in Peru. I just think it means think before you speak. Uh, and and and, yeah. and we we've got this 
what we actually mean in our head and then what we can sometimes but it's that sort of um like changing the narrative slightly to soften it before we speak so that people can receive it better totally totally a very wise lady and you know running running something like a debt collection agency would have been you know really challenging within a community and um doing it for 40 years is amazing because obviously it's not just you know a couple of years and then in that time in that time a woman doing that in that country would have been quite unusual wouldn't it so Bernie, what's interesting is, so I grew up with that knowledge and would go and visit Granny, sadly not Granny and Grandpa, not that often, uh, but my memories were so strong of this, and we we picked roses. They had a two-acre garden, and she taught me that when, by the way, when you put ice in roses, I still do it to this day, that they last longer. And and clearly there it was very hot, but by the way, it works in the UK as well. And so this incredibly rich woman who would then invite the women that had worked for her in the debt collecting agency, and we would have afternoon tea in, in her garden. And these were dear, dear friends. So I had this rich environment that uh, really, yeah, enriched my life. Sorry, Bernie. What was your? There was something else. What was your your point you made? I've 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 been listening to you and and gone off thought, but it doesn't matter. It really yeah. doesn't matter. Um, could we talk about um the imposter syndrome? Um, because there's a little bit there somewhere where you're sort of saying, um, you know, you've had the nudge and and but maybe there was a little bit of self doubt. Um. I've definitely experienced a lot of that in different roles, and especially as you go into a new role. Um, so I'm fascinated to, to hear if you've ever experienced it. Yeah, so so I think every time I've stepped into a new role, I have to say that the first six months, um, and it's probably a bit longer in some jobs, but in that first year, there's always this sense of, you know, should I really be here? Is this somebody else's job? <laughs> um, and quite often, I think... Um, I always used to put it down to the fact that I was, um, I used to say, I'm the only one, uh, I'm the only woman of colour, you know, quite often in whatever role um, I'd gone into um, and quite often into the meetings I'd go into or the rooms I'd walk into. Um, Sometimes the only woman and sometimes the only woman of colour. Fortunately, being the only woman um, is definitely um, less prevalent now, but being the only woman of colour is still um, sometimes uh, there. Although recently I've learned to reframe that, and that again has been through a, a period of reflection and, and conversation with other women. Um, so I don't say I'm the only one, I say I'm the first one. Oh. That's much, much more empowering. Um, <laughs> and I'm here to that up at a brilliant event that I was at in uh, Manchester, actually, um, um, as part of Black History Month. So um, I think, do, does it ever go away and do you ever start being self-critical? I mean, I'm, I also have been probably my own worst uh, critic, gen- genuinely. And in some ways, I think um, reflection and um, critiquing um, what what you do and how you do it and how you are and how you show up in the world regularly makes you a better person, I think, makes you more impactful, helps you to develop and grow. Um, so that's a positive thing. But I also know that I can be an overthinker and that can be really, really unhelpful. So that combined with the anxiety and probably stress of a new role and getting to know so much more um, and being in different contexts, of course, I think I, I now understand does play into my imposter syndrome. So I think recognising what the triggers are, recognising that it's there, 
Um, and I think also recognising that I've got a, a broader toolkit now that I can draw on to help challenge that or to keep it in check, I should say, um, is something that I've learned to do over time. And I think having brilliant women around constantly that remind you that, you know, mm. you can do this, you've done this, yeah. you know, um, keep going. And actually, you know, I think a key part of leadership is, and, and this is reassuring, that you don't actually have to have the, all the answers, do you? So it's not like being an expert mental health nurse, um, you know, it, it you, really it's about creating the right conditions for and lots of really clever people to come up with the answers, which which you 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 know might be you might contribute and you might not. Yeah, I think um, so. I've asked that question. Um, it's to t- female tech leaders, but I've asked that question. I think it's ninety three ladies that I've had the privilege of being able to interview. Um, a hundred percent of them have said yes, they've experienced it, and then they've talked about the different. Um, coping mechanisms and they've also talked about when it rears its head um and it's it's normally around a new job or something like a really important meeting that they've got to chair or a presentation that they've got to do or something they've really got to prep for and be on their a game for that that's sort of when but i've um and I've, I've not asked the question to as many men but any men that then i've have asked um only one was said yes straight away and he said the reason he thinks he said yes is because he's not neurotypical. So he felt because he'd already sort of addressed some other issues that he was able to sort of say that. It's definitely something about male pride, isn't it? That they don't feel able to. I, I believe that men and women experience it just the same, but the women are more open to saying they experience it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that that may be because of society and the way in which we expect men and women still to behave and um, conduct themselves and um, but I, I mean I have to say that more recently I, I have heard more men talk about it um, with me but they are younger they are probably uh, more more likely to do that um, yeah yes you're right I think women are more likely to talk about it than men yeah. but the other the other bit that I think has played into to my career and I'm much more conscious of that now is uh, you know I, I kind of feel like quite often people um, I, I I read somewhere something about attributed deficit. It's a concept. Um, in fact, a brilliant doctor in the NHS, I, I must look her up actually, she wrote a whole paper on this concept of attributed deficit. And it's about attributing deficits or um, a ceiling on somebody's ability um, because of their difference. And um, I, it's a phenomenon that resonated with me because I thought quite often I have been in meetings or I have been in workplaces where I have felt that I felt I've actually been capable of and able to contribute to more than I think was being seen um, or being experienced by colleagues around me. So yes, there's something about the impact I may well have been having and whether I was leaning into that or not, but there was definitely, I think, something around that. So I think it, it's got me thinking much more about that concept as well, together with the imposter syndrome. Mm. Yeah, and it's isolation. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's connected to. Go on, Diane. Uh, Bernie, I'm going to pick up your point about tech and IT and imposter syndrome. And I, in the last last year, have been invited twice to uh, um, open an I an ITAM conference in Sydney, and then uh, more recently in March this year was to open and close a conference, the same ITAM conference that's in Florida. And for me, 
you you were saying an important meeting and and for me that's when it happens when I sort of think what on earth am I doing and I know that for me the key is number one the the uh, and this has been a theme for me in the last few years before pandemic had started that I was choosing to partner with people that mattered to me to get that that encouragement that I needed and again comes back to Rob um this this wonderful business partner and I have a number Rob David and Dawn in fact in Australia is one of my uh, really key business partners and Rob invited me because I have grandchildren in Australia <laughs> he said do you want to I know you're going to Australia we've been invited to uh, open this conference uh, he said, I'm not interested in going. I want to put my three children to bed. Would you go? And I went, Rob, <laughs> I will be in Australia. And so, again, for me to get through that imposter syndrome of when I'm pre- – and, and actually the other thing for me is make friends with the AV person is my um, clue on how to cope with imposter syndrome so that I, I go and rehearse the day before. I go and walk. So like I've learned from lots of actor um, colleagues of mine that to go and rehearse in that situation helps me that when I'm walking in the next day to open the conference, it's not foreign to me. So I, I have lots of tips and, and tricks. Uh, the other one is um, my hairspray to make sure that my hair is not going to be get out of place or whatever, just so that I know that I will look good. So there's all sorts of stuff. I'm often like a a swan, I do believe, that under the water I'm going, all these things are buzzing in my head. And, and again, I'm making this choice about what impact do I do I want to have. But under it is this, oh my goodness, what am I doing here opening this conference or closing the conference? And it's so amazing. And just to finish this, yesterday I got a voice memo from Rob uh, to say, Diane, what tips are you going to give me? Because I'm going to the ITAM conference in London next week. And so, so again, to me, illustrates that that beautiful partnership where Rob and I spent time with me preparing. And then he had the humility to say, Diane, what, do, what are your top tips for me as I go to London to open and close the conference uh, next week? So I am delighted, yeah. It's wonderful. But what's also wonderful is that you would, um, people would perceive you as polished, together, never has a problem getting on that stage, super confident, does this every day, because that's the image that you would project in that moment. And for for someone that's watching, to be able to then understand that Maybe that's not how you feel every day. That yeah. um, it's uh, that you have um, you've made a choice and you've said you're going to do. Um, you've committed and you're going to do. You're going to open and you're going to close. But it, it's not as easy as it looks. No, it, there's definitely some work that goes in beneath that. I think someone once said to me, "Oh yeah, it takes six weeks to be an you know to actually do the the prep. You know, it looks like it's an overnight thing, but and you're yeah. winging it, but it's not." Yeah. Um, but to be that open rather than to sort of, oh, yes, I do this all the you know, I, I yeah. to yeah. be open to say that it takes some yeah. work to get to that point is um, really refreshing, I think. And um, 
people sometimes put a gloss on that that yeah and don't let people in so and, and link to that uh and salma will know this that dawn has got a most wonderful model called the stellar team model and uh in pandemic i ditched my team model and uh, we together we tweaked her team model and one of the elements in there is vulnerability uh, which is exactly what you're describing bernie yeah. and and yeah. we when we're working with leaders and with teams we use there are eight elements and they are so powerful but absolutely you are are spot on that it's the how can we be how can we be able to be strong confident and at the same time show some vulnerability and, and to me it's about stories it's it's the salma saying it uh, it was my auntie who used to wear bright clothes and i walked into the the um mental home that she was in and she was in dull clothes and salma that will sit with me forever uh in terms of that that memory uh incredible so just those stories are help people i do believe to show the vulnerability yeah and obviously that's been the theme for the book is the stories of other women yeah when you were collating those stories i'd love from as a sort of um, final thing from each of you was there one story that resonated with you more than others would you um, someone would you let us know if there was just one yeah and I'm sure they all resonated with you but pick well, one and I really can't say one because I okay what what was the challenge I think for all of us was identifying just a set number of women um, to be part of this because actually when we started to drop a list of women that had inspired us or we knew we were doing some brilliant work somewhere or um, that um, were, w- would add something different to a, co- a collection of stories. Um, actually, we all really, really struggled, which is why we ended up doing a second edition. And now we're all we're talking about the third edition. And just to say that every penny um, it, from the sales of these books goes to charity. And that felt quite important. We picked, obviously, our uh, charity, which supports women um, it, uh, to educate right across the globe. Um, so, so I really couldn't actually pick one story out, and I've I've read the whole book front to cover, and um, I did it over um, a, a few days that I had off, and I have to say I feel like I keep having to dive back into stories, yeah, because actually there's nuggets and lessons and lots that resonates in all of the different stories from the women. So, I unfortunately I can't say there was just one moment or one one bit of somebody's story. I think all of them are absolutely incredible. Yeah. So, Bernie, I might be cheeky then and give you two. Okay, please do. And one is Sue Pugh, who runs a cookery school in on Inlay Lake in Myanmar. And I attended her cookery school. And me being me, I was quizzy and got to, it was a whole day course, which I loved. Food, I did say, is a huge part of my life. I'm a real foodie and my family, we're all foodies. And she set up a, a, a school for children on the streets around where she lived in order to teach them English and teach them how how to have impact with other people, which is what her father did and did to her when she was growing up. And her husband, when her children were two and one, her husband left, had an affair and left her. And three years later, 
she was destitute. She she was poverty stricken and destitute. Three years later, he came back and uh, asked if he would uh, she would forgive him. They now run this cookery school, and she is still running this school for uh, street children and teaching them how teaching them English and how to have impact. When she came on the webinar, her Wi-Fi because Wi-Fi in Myanmar is dicey. She was coming in and out, and phenomenal woman. Uh, the the other one is Dr. Charlotte Bannister Parker, who Salma and I are going to have lunch with, and later Salma she in September maybe, not July. Oh. Uh, she was shipwrecked as um, age twenty two in on the east coast of Africa. She was doing she was journalist and doing some research, and the reality of the the. Uh, one of the crew members on the ship uh, managed to get some Muslim friends to rescue them. And she is uh, now a vicar in the Church of England, but she heads up some work, uh, some interfaith work. And so because of that experience she had when they were shipwrecked and marooned in the sea, this is pretty drastic. So Bernie... Um, we will send, you've got the book. I'm getting the book. I am getting the book without a doubt. I'm getting the book. I'm reading it tonight. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so just phenomenal, really phenomenal. So that's two people that, um, there are many more. Uh, the, the key thing is we invited people uh, to have a diversity. And that was the, so people we know, but we made sure that there was diversity. And hence we are now, doing the third edition. And I have one of the first female helicopter pilots in Australia has just sent me her submission. She had a baby at the, the publication of the last one and uh, wow. she wasn't able to do hers. So, so Salma, thanks to Nat in Australia, we are doing our third edition. Yeah. Oh, incredible. Incredible. I think that not only is it inspiring to put other women to give them a platform because that's what you're doing, isn't it? It's it's not about you, it's about them. And that's what I've really taken um, from this conversation. I, I loved um, thinking about the, the nudging and, you know, and, and lifting other women up and giving them that opportunity. Um, I love talking about the turning points and sort of the, the personal um aspects some of the things that have happened in your life that then have probably given you personal experiences to how you deal with something in your professional life um and I loved hearing about your granny as well um Diane so um I'm really really grateful for the time that you've given us before we end the podcast I'd like to say thanks so much to all of our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation thank you very very much to Salman Yisneem Deputy CEO and Executive Director of Strategy at South Yorkshire Partnership NHS Foundation Trust and Diane Wilkinson, Team and Leadership Coach at Connecting to Excellence. If you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I'm Bernadette Clark and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at bernadette.clark at evolution hyphencontract.co.uk or visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK forward slash NHS. Thanks again to all of our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.